another week, another look back at music I used to listen to on episode 5 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the Icy Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Hey everybody out there in podcast land, it is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you with episode number five of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. That's right, the MSGV podcast is brought to you by the IC Robots Radio Network, which you can find at icrobots.com. You can also follow the official IC Robots Facebook page over at Facebook. And you can find the IC Robots Radio Network feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Folks, the list goes on and on. Anywhere that podcast feeds congregate, go on over there and tune in to the IC Robots Radio Network and get access to all of our great shows. That's this, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, the IC Robots flagship show, The Toys R Us Report, IC Robots Audio Handbook of the Marvel Universe, and his show, This Boring Life. And when you're through checking all of that out, then you can go over to supportthereport.com, where for as little as $1 a month, you can help IC Robots Radio keep the lights on. Finally, you can follow me, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, on Twitter at Sensational Vega. You can also visit my website, www.genovega.wordpress.com, where I post show notes for each episode. There's also a link to my Facebook page. All Facebook friend requests are accepted, so feel free to drop me a line. And now, on to today's show. is what I like to hear the vocal stylings of the late, great, and I do mean great, Rowdy Roddy Piper, a true hero of mine. Uh, That's him with his track For Everybody off of 1985's The Wrestling Album, a truly classic album if you're not familiar with it, or hey, even if you are. And speaking of classic albums, we are going to be continuing here on episode 5 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast with my slog looking back at my history of popular music fandom. It's taken us two episodes so far, and we've gotten to about uh, where I was in sixth grade. So slow going, but we're getting there, folks. Um, Last episode, we looked at some of the general 80s pop music I was into as a youngster, uh, moving into my more focused interest in Michael Jackson, then my brief stint as a break dancer, 
Um, and we ended uh, with my interest in the Beatles. And that's where we're going to pick things up again here this time around as we move into what really becomes my main formative um, era of music interest. And that is with kind of heavy metal and punk music starting um, at the very end of the 80s and going through the 90s. So we're going to get to that today, but before we move on, I do want to check in with a few happenings that have been going on in the world of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega since last we spoke. And I feel a little bit bad about this because last time around, um, I told a wrestling story, a wrestling fandom story, and I did mention that I try not to talk about that too much on the show, or I want to try not to talk about that too much on this show for fear of alienating people, but uh, yeah, I got some more wrestling stories this time around. So please bear with me. I swear these are more kind of general interest stories with a with a wrestling veneer than they are um, total wrestling geek uh, freakouts. So y- you know what I'm going to do? Actually, um, just um, in the interest of uh, smoothing things over with anyone out there who just truly despises wrestling and is going to turn this off, uh, hearing me talk about anything related to wrestling, because I have encountered people like that in my life. Um, I'm just going to install a new warning system. Uh, Whenever I'm going to talk about uh, anything even remotely wrestling related on the show, I'm going to play this warning first, and then you can skip ahead five minutes or whatever if you want to bypass this stuff. So without further ado, here it is, the unveiling of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, Wrestling Talk Warning System. Warning. Warning. We are now going to talk about professional wrestling. Warning! Warning! Wrestling talk is about to begin! The world warning! 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 We are about to enter a zone that may be difficult for the humorless and unimaginative. Please skip ahead five minutes if this applies to you. You have been warned. Warning! Wrestling talk is about to begin! Overkill? A bit much? I don't know, I once did receive a multi-page private Facebook message calling me out for my low moral character due to my posting about professional wrestling on Facebook. So yeah, I like to play it safe. I like to be careful. Um, so, um, But moving on, um, a few weeks ago, I had the honor and privilege of traveling down about an hour south of here in Santa Rosa, California, where I live, to Daly City, California. And Daly City is basically uh, kind of an afterthought area um, kind of right at the tail end of uh, the city of San Francisco. I mean, it's its own city, but it may as well be kind of a a backwater part uh, of San Francisco itself. It's right near where San Francisco State University is. And I headed down there with my buddy Jerry because he had bought a couple of tickets for a wrestling show that was taking place down there put on by an organization called All Pro Wrestling. And All Pro Wrestling has been a wrestling promotion based out of the San Francisco Bay Area for a number of years. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when the promotion started. I attended my first APW show 
in the year 2000. They actually ran a show up here in my neck of the woods in Healdsburg, California. I think it was at a Boys and Girls Club in Healdsburg. I might be getting confused. I, maybe my, I played with a band at the Boys and Girls Club and the wrestling show was somewhere else. But in any case, it was in some sort of civic uh, building. Um, and at that time, wrestling was pretty hot, uh, just generally in popular culture. It was coming off the tail end of the late 90s, Monday Night Wars between WCW and WWF. You know, Stone Cold was still around. The Rock was still around. So um, that show I went to in 2000 was packed. There were no real big stars on that card. Um, I mean, the, uh, there were a couple guys uh, on the card. Obviously, were stars for for that particular promotion, APW. Uh, in particular, uh, a fellow named Michael Modest and a fellow named Tony Jones, who both uh, actually uh, are featured in the late 90s uh, documentary about the WWF Beyond the Mat. They're the two wrestlers that go in for a tryout, if you've ever seen that movie. Um, and there was another fellow on the card by the name of Christopher Daniels, who went on to be a pretty pretty decent star in uh, the world of professional wrestling. Um, but at the time, um, most of the people in attendance, I would say, were not familiar with these wrestlers. We all kind of went because it was a wrestling show, local wrestling show at a time where wrestling was really popular. So years went by. Wrestling popularity plummeted. Um, APW, I know, ran at least one more show um, in the last 17 years since then um, up here in Santa Rosa. And I think Icy Robots himself went to that show. And uh, if I remember correctly, said it wasn't that much to write home about. But over the last few years, independent wrestling, small level wrestling, local wrestling is kind of in a renaissance period. Um, just because it's so much easier now to, if you're a small outfit, um, kind of put your stuff out there on the internet. You can, you know, stream shows, you can sell merchandise online. Um, so there's kind of this whole world of wrestling, um, outside of the big WWE corporate umbrella, whether it's, uh, local, smaller level, uh, American wrestling or wrestling from overseas. There's kind of this like, um, uh, subculture of like alternative wrestling fans and I'm definitely part of that my friend Jerry's part of that so anyway um, APW has in conjunction with this been having its own uh, renaissance and they have been running shows lately where they have been booking kind of bigger name stars to appear on their shows um, interspersed with more kind of local talent and by stars I mean people that have been on national television before people that have been in WWE um, people that um those outside of kind of the small underground wrestling niche um, might be familiar with. And so that was definitely the case with this show that uh, Jerry and I went to. Um, It was called uh, APW We Out Here. It was at, I think, like a senior center, like performing uh, center or something. I don't know. It was like this weird little um, enclave with like a big parking lot and like maybe there was like some tennis courts and stuff. And then there was just this building where they were able to put on the show. And I think there were like 800 people there. I know it sold out. Um, They did really well. It was a really well-run show. Um, Fun time. A lot of great wrestling. Um, Got to see some quirky characters on the show. Um, Chris Christofferson's son, uh, Jody Christofferson, who did a brief stint uh, in the WWE developmental system. He was there. And I was kind of get a kick out of that. I don't want to pigeonhole the poor guy and, like, you know, uh, identify him as son of so-and-so. But I do think it's kind of cool when um, being a wrestling fan, when the children of someone who uh, was a celebrity in a more mainstream, respectable entertainment field, I mean respectable to the population at large, I actually find wrestling to be much more respectable than 
being a popular recording artist, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, I, I just find it interesting. Like this guy could have could have tried to take on any entertainment uh, walk of entertainment life uh, he so chose. One would think, but he chose wrestling, and I think that's kind of cool. Similarly, um, there was a young man on the show called Jungle Boy. Jungle Boy looked to be all of maybe eighteen or nineteen. Um, Jungle Boy, it turns out, is Luke Perry's son. So again, pretty cool that these guys, you know, dads have connections that can probably get them started, open the doors for them in any number of entertainment fields, and these fellows chose wrestling. So to that, I salute them. Um, The main draw for this uh, particular show, though, was a trio of wrestlers on the card, um, two of whom are pretty big names, kind of as big a name as you can get outside of the mainstream world of WWE. And one wrestler who up until recently was a name in WWE. And these three wrestlers were Cody Rhodes, uh, Pentagon Jr., and Zack Sabre Jr. Now, Cody Rhodes, um, for those of you who have any knowledge of wrestling uh, or memories of wrestling... Uh, Cody is the son of Dusty Rhodes, one of the most famous wrestlers in um, the history of modern wrestling. Uh, The American Dream Dusty Rhodes was a huge star in the National Wrestling Alliance, uh, WCW, even a stint in WWF. Um, Just passed away a few years ago. I guess it's been a few years now, a couple years. In any case, uh, his son Cody uh, wrestled in WWE, was not a huge star there, was kind of a mid-card guy. Eventually sort of got frustrated with his position on the card, with the uh, politics in the WWE system, and decided to just strike it out on his own, uh, hit the road, do independent shows, and make his own way in the world. And while I wasn't really a Cody Rhodes fan at all when he was in WWE, I didn't have a problem with the guy, just he was pretty mid to low card, not someone I ever really connected with emotionally on any significant level. Um, I've grown to kind of admire his independent run um, simply because of the fact that he was in a position creatively, artistically, um, albeit working for a big company with relative security and uh, financial compensation. He was in a position to just say, screw this. You know, I want to do what makes me happy. I want to do what I want to do. And he's out there doing it. And that really is a theme here of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. It's uh, doing your thing, not being concerned about um, how that fits in with other people's expectations or uh, whether you're in step with the crowd or whatever. Just uh, fixating on the things you're interested in and projecting that out in the world. Um, So yeah, I'm not the world's biggest Cody Rhodes fan or anything, but he does get the uh, 100% seal uh, of approval here from the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, and I was looking forward to seeing him in Daly City. Um, Accompanying him on the card was a wrestler named Pentagon Jr. Uh, Pentagon Jr. is known for wrestling for some of the bigger promotions in Mexico. Uh, He also appears on a television show on the El Rey Network, here in the States called Lucha Underground. And Lucha Underground was a show, um, it's produced by uh, Robert Rodriguez of El Mariachi fame um, and uh, Mark Burnett, who was involved in the television show Survivor. Uh, it was kind of like a, a telenovela um, slash comic book slash uh, science fiction um, 
fantasy take on professional wrestling um, where it, it all takes place within a contained universe where uh, these luchadors and other wrestlers are converging on a warehouse in Los Angeles and having these uh, wrestling matches that are also at the same time connected to kind of these cosmic and mystical happenings. And I, I was really into the show for about a, the first season and a half. I thought it was a really awesome uh, fresh take on wrestling, but then it just kind of fizzled out. I mean, it's still going on, I think, but I stopped watching it. I checked out midway of season two, stopped doing anything for me. But anyway, Pentagon Jr. was on that show, and he's one of the highlights of that show. Uh, masked wrestler, kind of with some skull face paint, a uh, really distinctive look. And then um, the third wrestler I'll mention as far as big names on this show uh, was a fellow named Zack Sabre Jr. Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, comes from the UK. He wrestles kind of the British style of wrestling, which has uh, always traditionally been kind of a cerebral grappling-based style, a lot of strange holds and like... Um, contortion-y ways of getting from one hold to another. He's kind of this skinny little guy, but he, he's, his limbs are like plastic. He's kind of like Plastic Man, you know, uh, just kind of like locking people up into these wacky submission holds. So he's a lot of fun to watch. So anyway, I was excited to see these three at the top of the card. Like I said, my friend Jerry and I drove down there to the show, got there, went in. place was crowded. I think uh, I, I heard uh, they did about 800 people, um, which uh, totally filled up the venue that they had. Um, we got there a little bit early and we were able to walk around. And this is kind of funny for me because um, prior to this, I'd only ever been to really big uh, wrestling shows like WWE or WCW events that are kind of in an arena. Um, and then um, indie shows like the one I mentioned from the year 2000, the APW show in Healdsburg, um, where there's no one with real um, star power on the show. So this was kind of in between because this was an indie show, but you had some legit television stars on the card. And so I was curious to see what that dynamic was like because, I, I, like I said, I haven't been to a show like that before. So we got there early, and it's cool because everyone just kind of milling around, and uh, all the wrestlers on the card are just set up behind card tables uh, selling merchandise, selling T-shirts and such. And on one side of the basketball-type gym uh, auditorium building this thing took place in, um, all of the wrestlers um, – starting with Pentagon Jr. and next to him, Zack Sabre uh, Jr., and then kind of like cascading on down to like guys you'd never heard of before. They were all set up on one side of the gym uh, behind uh, kind of card tables, folding tables, um, selling their gear. Um, and then on the other side of the gym, Cody Rhodes was by himself, and he seemed to have like a handler or manager type guy. He had a really long line. I did not get into line to buy anything from him. Um, I might at a future date, but um, that particular evening, I was more interested in buying a Pentagon Jr. shirt and a Zack Sabre Jr. shirt. And um, so buying a shirt entailed getting in line and actually interacting with each of those two individuals, which was kind of weird because it was like, on one hand, it was sort of cool because it was almost like seeing comic book characters just kind of walking around in um, the real world. But on the other hand... Um, on one hand, it's fascinating, too, because these guys are basically traveling from uh, wrestling booking to wrestling booking, you know, by themselves, lugging all this merchandise with them. It's not like um, I'm used to um, when I was in a band or when I uh, would see other bands uh, growing up, you know, you'd bring your merchandise and you'd sell it. But first of all, you'd be traveling with a bunch of other people, usually in a van. And you'd usually have like a roadie or someone to help you out to sell the merchandise while you were doing your thing. But with these wrestlers, it's like a, a one-man show. You know, they're, they're, they're there. They're doing the show by themselves. They usually flew there um, from parts unknown. And um, 
they're also responsible for selling all of their gear. And so um, I walked right up, and there's Pentagon Jr., and uh, he... uh, Yeah, I don't think I mentioned this before. I I probably should have. If you can, if you're not familiar with Pentagon Jr., uh, Google him really quick. Check out a picture of him. um, Or go to uh, genovega.wordpress.com, where I'll have a picture of him in the show notes for this episode. But um, his gimmick, he's kind of a masked wrestler with kind of a real dark look and sort of like skull paint on his face, the part of his face that's exposed from the mask. Um, So he's kind of this spooky, um, creepy, skeletal character. Um, His catchphrase is, um, I'm going to slaughter the Espanol here, but it's um, Cero Miedo, which is zero fear. Um, So he's like a scary guy, but he's not afraid of anything. But anyway, I go up there, and it's just kind of surreal to see him there, full mask, full makeup, you know, all his tattoos and everything, just kind of, hey, how's it going, man? You know, uh, how much are those t-shirts? Oh, 30. Uh, you got any mediums? Oh, I only have this one in medium. Okay, I'll take that one. Thanks. And uh, at one point, I, I was doing the transaction, and I looked over, and I, I even kind of saw him, like, uh, I don't want to denigrate the guy. I don't want to say he was picking his nose, but, like, kind of scratching the side of his nose, which just, you know, Pentagon Jr., to me, he's this, like, mythical character, and here he's he's reduced to just a man selling T-shirts. So that was kind of cool, but also kind of weird. I don't know how I feel about it. Because on one hand, you know, you like to keep the mystique. You like to, to keep you, the larger-than-life characters larger than life. But on the other hand, there's always something fun about that kind of weird, absurd, surreal mixing of the... The, the sacred and the profane or whatever. I don't know. Um, we're not going to go back to philosophy class here today, but I, I, I tend towards um, appreciating that kind of stuff. Um, so bought a shirt from him, uh, bought a shirt from Zack Sabre Jr. I felt too awkward to get a picture taken with either, either of them. My friend Jerry got a picture taken with uh, Zack Sabre. And that brought up another weird thing for me is like this guy, Zack Sabre Jr. I'm looking at him. I was like, damn, this guy's so young. And I just looked up on Wikipedia. They have him listed as 29. And, you know, I'm 40. And I feel weird because in my, in my mind, I'm still this young guy liking wrestling. And I think of all the wrestlers as being um, at the uh, absolute uh, uh, youngest, like my age, um, but probably older. But that's just not the case anymore. I'm like, it's kind of like with following sports teams, too. It's really weird to me, like getting excited about some dudes in the draft. And it's like, oh, this guy's like 19. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess that's just getting older, you know, it's not gonna, you're not gonna stop liking stuff just because everyone's younger than you, but it's just kind of, it's a new dynamic for me, I'm, I'm getting used to it. Uh, I like to um, irritate my wife, uh, Ms. Sensational, by um, informing her I have this catchphrase, that, you know, I'm the kind of guy who likes to think of myself as 38, you know, that's the age, I'm never gonna get past that, I'm 38 for life, but I'm, actually I'm 40, and 40 and gaining, so... <laughs> It's not true. But anyhow, uh, Jerry and I eventually settled in. The show began. It was a lot of fun. Um, Some preliminary matches with kind of local lesser-known guys. Then midway through the card, you started getting guys that have some national exposure. Um, And then that led to the the big main event matches, um, which was... um, Zack Sabre Jr. versus a guy named, I think, Will Cuevas, who's like the local APW champ. They had a title match, and then uh, Pentagon Jr. and Cody Rhodes went at it for what I believe was the first time ever, and that was a great match. And like what I said earlier about um, seeing Pentagon um, being just a guy selling shirts earlier in the evening, his performance in the match just erased that out of my mind, because that guy was just a freaking superstar, both him and Cody. It's really interesting at these shows to see the difference and kind of gravitas between guys that have experience on, on uh, national or international television versus uh, local guys kind of making their way up because these these TV guys just bring the star aura. Like even if someone like like I said, it's not like I was a huge fan of Cody Rhodes when he was on TV or whatever, but when you see that guy in person, you're just like, whoa, this guy, this guy's a star. Um, 
So they had a great match. Um, this guy, uh, bad guy Joey Ryan, ran in at the end and bloodied Cody up. Uh, now they're going to have a match, a return match, a uh, cage match at San Francisco's legendary Cow Palace coming up in May. So Jerry and I are going to head down for that. That should be fun. That was a historical spot for a lot of wrestling in San Francisco that hasn't been run as a venue for wrestling in many years. And APW is bringing it back. So yay. Wrestling returns to the Cow Palace. That's going to be great. They're going to have a battle royal with all kinds of crazy, like Gangrel is going to be in it. X-Pac, who was also known as the One Two Three kid um, All kinds of people on that card. Um, might have to talk about that one uh, when it happens. So just a forewarning. So anyway, um, that's what's been going on with me. Um, this show was actually delayed a bit uh, getting finished. I started it before spring break and then spring break happened and um my studio here at sensational manor which is basically in our living room was overrun with the kids for spring break making it really hard for me to record and finish this episode so it's taken me a lot longer than i wanted to to get it out um i was going to talk about something else current um here but i am wanting to just kind of get into the main topic which is the music history so we can keep moving with that um things are kind of still fluid here with the mr sensational gino vega podcast uh we're only on episode five i'm still getting the format down i'm kind of thinking what it's going to start to be because i feel bad i'll say there's a topic of the show then i end up talking about something like this apw show for like 15 minutes i remember in the warning i said five it was a lot longer than that but um but I do kind of like, I don't want to just talk about old times. I like to bring in what's going on now. So I, I think the format, you know, more or less going forward is going to be uh, spend the first half of the show kind of talking about the current day and then the second half of the show talking about whatever the the main topic, quote unquote, is um, of the episode. Um, I did have something else, like I said, I was going to talk about today, but I'm kind of running out of time here. We'll talk about it next time. We're going to talk about, and again, <laughs> sort of wrestling related, so watch out, but not. But it's more video game uh, related. Um, the soon to be happening release of a video game called Fire Pro Wrestling World. We're going to talk about that next time um, for any of you Fire Pro uh, fans out there. And even if you're not a fan, the, the legend of Fire Pro is something... Uh, Something that anyone who's into weird, lame, geek stuff, like I talked about on here, The Legend of Fire Pro should be of some marginal interest to you. So uh, with that being said, let's take our break and then let's get back into the meat of the matter and talk about my history as a fan of popular music, which we've been talking about the last couple episodes here on the podcast. Uh, We'll be right back. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. You are listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the Icy Robots Radio Network. Feel it, see it, hear it today. If you can't, then it doesn't matter anyway. You will never understand it because it happens to fast. And it feels so good inside like walking the glass. It's so cool, so hip, it's alright. It's so groovy, it's out of sight. You can touch it, smell it, peach is so sweet. But it makes no difference, cause it's not so good. 
and welcome back to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, episode number five, where we're going to continue looking at my history of popular music fandom, hopefully getting closer to the end here because it might be nice to move on to something else, but I picked such an expansive uh, subject that it has taken several episodes thus far. So, um, when last we spoke, I believe I was talking about how around the time of sixth grade, where I guess I would have been, um, like 12, 13 years old, um, I had taken an interest in the Beatles and that had come to me by way of my parents owning several Beatles records, which then turned into me having my first vinyl collection that I ever owned, which was a, um, box set collection of all the UK releases um, from the Beatles. So I was fully entrenched in Beatles world for about a year. Um, Had a lot of books about them, um, collectors, uh, catalogs of memorabilia. Like I didn't own any memorabilia myself, but I just pour over these catalogs. Um, uh, Tried to make my own... um, my own stop motion animated sequel to the Yellow Submarine movie. Um, I didn't get very far. Um, but uh, at a certain point, um, while this was going on, while I was listening to the Beatles, I was going to sixth grade. And um, I covered my sixth grade year quite extensively on, I believe it was episode two of the podcast, uh, Failures in Skateboarding. Sixth grade was when I was at Matanzas Elementary School trying to get in with these skater dudes and failing. Um But around as that skater thing was happening and probably after the skater thing failed too, um, you know, I was still trying to find my niche, trying to find a way to fit in a a group uh, that I could participate in where things would start to make sense. And I noticed much like I had noticed um, skaters wearing skateboard T-shirts and how that stood out to me and appealed to me. I also noticed... um, there were a, we hadn't had these at my previous school, um, the one I'd spent uh, fourth and fifth grade at. Um, but we had had them way back when I was in early elementary school in Atascadero, California. And this was uh, people wearing heavy metal band T-shirts. A uh, group of people that would later become to known as or come to be known <laughs> as uh, Heshers. Uh, that term wasn't in play here at this place in time. Um, I can't remember if they called them this yet. They definitely called them this next year in uh, junior high school, but uh, probably called them this uh, in sixth grade at Matanzas as well. Um, people that were into the um, heavy metal band t-shirts and the mullet style haircuts and kind of feathered uh, hair. Uh, rockers. Um, so I noticed a preponderance of rockers in Matanzas. Um, and rockers were wearing a lot of tour shirts. Like there'd be like the Europe Final Countdown tour t-shirt. I remember seeing that. I remember seeing White Snake tour T-shirts. Um, so these were more kind of like hair metal rockers. Um, I don't remember there being much in the way of kind of harder thrash metal yet in sixth grade. It, it was a lot of girls um, and maybe like one or two guys, and it was mostly like hair metal, kind of glam metal uh, shirts that I would see. But again, much like with skateboard shirts, it was like these people wear these shirts and they seem to know what they're doing. They seem to belong to something. And in, in wearing this stuff, things seem to make more sense to them than they do to me, just kind of twisting out here uh, in the wilderness, left my own devices. And I had, as I talked about, I guess, oh, in the first episode, talking about music, um, a couple episodes back, you know, when I was in first, second, third grade, I was all about hair metal. I just hadn't followed along with it closely enough as I got older enough to, like, take on the, the appearance. 
Um, so I felt myself kind of gravitating back. Maybe this is where I should have been all along. Maybe I should uh, come back to the hair metal. And I still enjoyed, um, after school, I'd watch MTV a lot. And um, at that time, hair metal was was pretty mainstream on MTV. I mean, as you'd see it in, in you, you wouldn't even necessarily have to go to like um, specialized shows um, on the network just during their regular rotation back then they would show metal videos I mean not metal you know hard metal but again like Europe's final countdown White Snake uh, Here I Go Again that stuff was all in, in heavy rotation and I I enjoyed those songs and I enjoyed those videos and I really it's funny because I associate that sound that style with my childhood now looking back but even back then I just uh, uh the hair metal was kind of my comfort place. I'd, I'd see those videos. It's like, yeah, I'm just this kid going to school in sixth grade. Life sucks, but uh, this is the soundtrack to my sucky life. So here we go. Here I go again on my own, as it were. Which is a great song, by the way. I love that song still to this day. So, uh, you know, I the the heavy metal shirt crew, the rocker crew at this school, it was kind of a weird thing. I it felt very impenetrable. Um, where with the skaters, I had delusionally thought that I could make inroads with these guys and hang out with them. Like I said, the the rockers in sixth grade were mostly girls. And me being me, not particularly socially developed. Um, and not I've never been like straight up introverted. And I can actually be pretty outgoing in the right environment. But in an environment where I'm not feeling comfortable... I kind of just like melt into the shadows. So I, it, it, 12 years old, however old I was at that time in sixth grade, I was not about to try to socialize with some girls. You know, I just, I, I just took, oh, that's not for me. <laughs> that's like outside of my, uh, above my pay grade, outside my scope. So I kind of spent the rest of that sixth grade year after I'd been uh, rebuffed by the skaters, sort of licking my wounds from that, observing the rockers from afar, um, and kind of listening with one ear on my Beatles records, one ear and both eyes on MTV, uh, in particularly at that point, in particular at that point on uh, hair metal, because uh, pretty much everything else that was going on on MTV at the time wasn't really resonating with me anymore. And I don't even really remember what else was on there at that time. I guess maybe kind of like CNC Music Factory type stuff, and like Janet Jackson, um... Maybe was Boys to Men in the house yet? Maybe. I don't know. But that stuff didn't really do much for me. Um, whereas with just the, the epic balladry of Europe and White Snake, you know, I just I felt moved by that stuff. I felt it speaking to me. Um, so I, I'm thinking about it, too. I'm doing the math. I, I was actually 11 that year in sixth grade because my birthday's in August. So I would always turn I'd be one age for the whole school year. So, yeah, I was 11 in sixth grade. Um, and then, um, that year ended and I moved on to Herbert Slater junior high school, now Herbert Slater middle school. And my first real vivid memory of Herbert Slater junior high school was when I was in sixth grade, we went over there for an orientation. And as we were standing in the hall, it was one, it was like an enclosed hall with lockers and classrooms in it, which that was new to me. I, we hadn't had those at elementary school. Um, we were walking down the hall and a boy and two girls who were probably like a year or two older than me at the time, but for, to me, they were, they were like in their thirties. Um, they came into the hall just looking fully eighties. Like both girls just had like the Madonna, like desperately seeking Susan look going on and the dude, 
looked like, you know, had his like breakfast club look uh, happening. And uh, they walked past us and the guy kind of sneered and the girls were snickering. And then one of the girls just looked at us and was like, ha, 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 ha. welcome to hell. And from that moment in my mind, in my memory, everything just becomes a montage um, a montage of that summer getting the orientation material for the junior high school uh, saying that for PE boys would need to um, start wearing athletic supporters my mom tried to make me go to the store uh, shopping for athletic supporters and uh, getting like threatening letters about how much homework we were going to have the next year and uh, there was like a list of books we had to procure um, from like the, the I can't remember they called it not the book office at the store but the I mean, I mean at the school and not the bookstore but in any case it was like this whole new like world I was going to be entering that just seemed hostile and foreboding and um, it all started with that girl with the welcome to hell and it, in the background in this montage the opening segment of welcome to the jungle is playing because on that first day when I got to school I'm walking down the hall, one of the first things I see is this dude named Darren. And Darren had been in sixth grade at Matanzas, and he was kind of like a mischievous screw-up kid. Um, he was kind of like a lanky, uh, skinny, lanky guy who hung out with this really, really big, kind of uh, Bam Bam Terry Gordy-looking dude named Rick. Even bigger than Bam Bam Gordy, though. This guy's like really, really overweight. Um, and uh, they were kind of a thuggish duo. Um, but Darren, over the summer, had just gone to full GNR. Jean jacket, rose patch on the shoulder. He had a full mullet. And um, it was just, that's when, like, you know, the montage had started with the, the uh, girl with the welcome to hell. And then all the horrible, um, like, pubescent things that were going on over the summer in preparation for this horrid uh, experience. And then um, all that culminated in, in walking down the hall seeing Darren in his new gear and just Welcome to the jungle! Well, anyway, you know the rest. But uh, I was like, okay, so yeah, this is happening. Um, this uh, rocker thing, this is, it's all coming together here now. It's getting real. So I was like, you know, I'm all in on this. I'm getting in on this on the ground floor, but I'm going I'm to do it right this time. I'm not going to, you know, make the same mistakes I made with the skaters. I'm going to do my research and I'm going to become a rocker and this is all going to work out. So that was my plan. Um, but pretty soon I sort of got swept up in the enormity of moving from elementary school to junior high school and everything else that was going on in my life. So I was struggling just to keep my head above water and I kind of any designs to to find a group to belong to um, kind of fell by the wayside. I wasn't really thinking about it a whole lot, um, but I was definitely still watching the rockers out of the corner of my eye and seeing their group get bigger and bigger and starting to get edgier too, because like um, now it was mainly like the girls that would be wearing like the hair metal shirts, but like dudes were wearing like Iron Maiden, can I play with madness shirts and like Metallica, metal up your ass and just all this like, whoa, God, these guys are like uh, Satan worshipers, you know? Uh, this is some heavy black magic occult stuff. Um, so I was kind of watching the, their their crew assemble, and I was also noticing that they, as they assembled, a rival crew was assembling. And this rival crew, while we had the rockers on one side, you had the rappers on the other side. 
And the rappers are basically dudes that were into uh, rap music, which for them at that time was like MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. Because these are, we're talking like, you know, white rapper dudes, not to be weird or make any racial uh, stereotypes or determinations. But I'm just, you know, these were like totally like poser rapper guys. Let's just put it that way. Um, but they were very serious about it. They were they were straight up G's. They were hard G's. Um, and so, and they hated rockers. They're the only thing uh, a rapper hated more than like a, an adult trying to tell them what to do and mess with their click was... Uh, Oh, those dirty, smelly rockers. So, because, you know, the rappers were all about, like, keeping their, their stuff tight and clean. And uh, the <laughs> uh, rockers are all sitting there looking like they haven't bathed in two weeks and just, like, mullets festering and everything. But uh, anyway, so I was kind of watching this unfold as I was dealing with my own uh, uh, just trying to survive. I had kind of fallen back in with my friend John, who I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, um, maybe even, like, the first episode Um of the podcast, like we used to hang out in uh, fourth and fifth grade at Bennett Valley School playing Robotech. Um, but I was kind of hanging with him and I was having my first real full on experiences of uh, being kind of physically bullied by people. Cause like, you know, I'd always be like told to screw off or what an idiot I was like in elementary school, but I hadn't had a lot of like straight physical dealings. And that kind of started um, in seventh grade. I remember one of my first real eye-opening experiences in this regard was uh, the guy Darren I mentioned earlier. He had a buddy named Clinton, I think. And, um, or Quentin or Clinton? Um, maybe it was Quentin. Let's say Quentin. But uh, Quentin was a rocker, but he also, his rocker variation, um, his variant of the rocker look was um, he almost busted, and I hate to say this, but it's the best way I can think of to explain it. He had kind of like a school shooter look, like he was into the trench coats and the backwards hats, but this was like years before. I mean, we were in a much more innocent time. That wasn't even a thing. Um, but I'm looking back, that's what he looked like to me and wore like the fingerless leather gloves and stuff like that. And uh, one day um, we had a snack bar at Slater and for a quarter you could get a lemon juice bar, popsicle basically, and I was really got addicted to these, but I didn't always have a quarter on me. So one day I bummed a quarter off Quentin and, um, yeah, yeah, I'll pay you back, man. Thanks. Thanks. And I ate my popsicle and didn't think anything of it. A couple days later, I went into the boys room and he was in there maybe with Darren, definitely with that big guy, Rick, I talked about earlier. And he was like, Hey man, where's that quarter you owe me? And I was like, Oh, I'll get it to you soon, Quentin. Uh, don't worry about that. And it's like, no, you're paying up now. And, uh, while he was yelling at me, like Rick came up behind me and like was strangling me with like a shoelace or something. <laughs> so yeah, they're just like choking me out in the bathroom over a quarter. So that's where I was realizing, you know, I'm in a whole different different world here now. Um, so yeah, I was I was distracted with that kind of stuff more so than um, I was distracted with even getting to a, a social level where I wasn't being strangled. Um, much less uh, to a level where I was actually fitting in with a group. I actually got strangled a couple times in seventh grade. I remember I got I got strangled in uh, the PE locker room one day by this guy who was a little goon of, uh, there were three PE coaches at Slater. The oldest one was a guy named Coach Bart, and he was a super nice guy. Always gave me an A in PE. Then the next kind of middle-in-aged guy was a guy named Coach Archer. And he was he was like, business-like, but uh, fair. And so he usually gave me like a B and PE. But then the youngest one was this dude named Silvis. And Silvis was kind of like walking around, strutting around with his chest puffed out, you know, real real tough guy. 
And uh, he, I think, didn't like wimps. And so I remember, yeah, his little toady was strangling me in um, the PE locker room one day. And the way things shook out, I ended up being the one that got in trouble for it. So yay, Herbert Slater Junior High School. Great place. Love that place. But uh, anyway, um, oh, yeah, I forgot to add that Silvas would give me a C in PE. So um, anyhow... um, the year continued to go by, and eventually I did settle in more. You know, that, that became the new normal. Um, and one night I went over to spend the night at um, my friend John's house. And by this point, I guess, like, I mean, I, I wasn't really listening to music. The Beatles thing had kind of fallen by the wayside. And I think I was more distracted with, like, video games, surviving at school, playing um uh, original Nintendo Entertainment System video games at home, um, kind of pouring over role-playing game books with my friend John because we were always going to play games. John and I think another guy named Matt. But, like, we, we had such limited time back then because, like, when you're hanging out with your friends when you're a kid, you can't, like, it's not like when you're an adult and you could have some eight-hour gaming session. You know, we had however many hours our moms were going to let us play together. And so we'd always make, every time we'd meet up, we'd make characters and that would take all the time and then we'd never actually play the games. So, um, sort of half asked playing, uh, role-playing games with John and this guy, Matt, um, and reading, buying comic books. Um, I'd also gotten into modeming by this point, but that is another topic for another time. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, I went to go spend the night at John's house and I remember one time in particular, we started talking about music, and um, I think actually what really set us off was that um, we were staying up really late, and we were watching uh, USA Up All Night, which was a show that used to be on the USA Network. Um, I guess it must have been maybe Fridays and Saturday nights, because I imagine I'd be over there on one of those nights, uh, but I feel like it, it aired on both nights. And um, it was a show where a campy host, it was either Gilbert Gottfried or um, this woman, um, I think her name was Rhonda Shears, um, and they would basically host um, campy B-movies. Um, <clears throat> and so this night in particular, we must have seen some 80s B-movie that involved like some like heavy metal music or something, and we started talking about how cool heavy metal music was, and uh, I think... Um, uh, John was like, well, you know, if you stay up really late, um, this must have been a Saturday night because this show is on Saturday nights. Um, and you turn on MTV, they have a thing called the Headbangers Ball where all they show is heavy metal music. And like I said, I'd seen plenty of hair metal music on MTV, you know, like in prime time or not even necessarily prime time, but like the afternoon. Um, but I had generally at home by myself, I wouldn't be staying up late watching MTV on a Saturday night. So, uh, we switched over and we started watching it. And the first video that came on was a song called The Audience is Listening by Steve Vai. And Steve Vai is like a virtuoso, masturbatory solo um, guitar uh, uh, maestro. And this was an instrumental song with him just wailing on a guitar. And um, I think what happened was the video for the song, I think it starts off and he's like a little kid version of himself and he's being hounded by some humorless teacher um, and he kind of blows her away with the guitar. Much like that Twisted Sister We're Not Gonna Take It video that captured my imagination some years um, previously that I talked about um, a couple episodes ago. But um, anytime, like those kind of, that kind of imagery, that sort of like disgruntled child 
striking back at adult authority always really resonated with me. And that coupled with just like the wild guitar licks of the song, I was like, this is just blowing my mind. This is the kind of stuff, this is what's going to bring me into the world of the rockers. Uh, I got to get this tape. And John was like, well, let's go downtown tomorrow and get the tape. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, just uh, take the bus downtown. I do it all the time. And see, John, um, John's parents were divorced but lived very close to each other, like literally a couple streets away. But, you know, he would be with one parent at any given time, but his parents worked. So he um, kind of earlier than me came into sort of more like independent locomotion. Uh, like he was already navigating the city bus system and stuff like that at this point where I wasn't really doing that. I'd ride my bike around, but that was about it. And I didn't go um, much more than like a couple block radius away from my parents' house. So um, that next day, we did indeed take the bus downtown and we went to the downtown Santa Rosa Plaza, the mall downtown, strolled into Music Land and purchased a cassette copy of Steve Vai's album, Passion and Warfare. And uh, I'm looking at a picture of the cover art right now, and it's just what I remember. Uh, Got Steve Vai standing front and center and kind of some black rocker gear, uh, tight shirt, tight pants, big belt buckle, boots, uh, long hair, and some dangly earrings. And he's got his, like, loud, obnoxious uh, neon Ibanez guitar, and he's just chilling with some fairies, and there's an Illuminati sign floating in the sky above him, and a yin-yang flag, and some devils and fire down at the bottom. And uh, we bought that tape, we walked out of music land, and we proceeded to realize we had spent all the money that we had. So we had no money to take the bus back to his mom's house. So we had to walk, which was kind of a trek. But on that trek, we talked about how sweet the Steve Vai album was going to be. And we got home probably an hour or so later and threw it on and listened to it. And eh, that one song was awesome. But uh, other than that, it wasn't quite what I had anticipated um that wasn't quite uh the rocker rock that i was hoping for but i knew i was getting closer to where i needed to be and this had um this whole episode was uh formative for me because it had reawakened oh yeah i can go buy my own tapes much like i had done at cheap thrills and atascadero during my breakdancing days that for some reason I'd kind of fallen off of. I hadn't really gone out to buy music as much in the years since. But yeah, not only can I buy my own tapes, I have my own way of getting down there now. I can start using the bus like John does. That wasn't that hard. I was a little freaked out when uh, we didn't have money we were going to have to walk home, but even that worked out. So um, horizons were opening and uh, a new chapter was dawning in the life of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. And one of the hallmarks of this new chapter was that um, I took up watching Headbangers Ball pretty regularly after this. I would um, stay up as late as I could watching it at my house on Saturdays. Um, uh, I would uh, videotape it with uh, uh, my video cassette recorder, VHS machine. that was cutting edge in those days. It's it's hip and retro now, but uh, th- that was the technology of the day um, when I was 12. Um, but uh, occasionally I would still do overnighters at John's house on Saturdays and we would watch it then as well. 
But through watching Headbangers Ball, I started to, um, I guess, put sounds to names. Uh, I'd see the names of these bands on the rockers' shirts at school, and then I would actually get to see their videos on the Headbangers Ball, and I was starting to chart a course of which bands I liked and which I was interested in. And I remember John and I um, got very taken with um, the thrash metal band Anthrax. Um and so that was one of our next forays. We went downtown, and uh, I, I can't remember if like, we would each buy a copy of these tapes or if we bought one and it went back and forth. I, I'm not entirely sure, but, um, you know, I think in this case we each bought our own because he bought, um, I think what it was is we went downtown and I bought what was at the time the newest Anthrax album, Persistence of Time, and I believe he bought a copy of State of Euphoria. And so Anthrax was kind of steering us towards kind of the harder edge thrash stuff, and Anthrax begat listening to a lot of Metallica, which begat listening to Megadeth. Megadeth pretty much becoming my favorite of all the thrash metal bands, and probably one of my favorite bands of all time. Not so much their their more recent output, and by recent I mean like last 20 years, but like um, uh, So Far So Good, So What is a great album, uh, Peace Sells um, is a great album, but above all that, for me, Rust in Peace uh, by Megadeth is the penultimate um, heavy metal template album. I love that album. There's the combination of the styles of the songs, the just precision, crazy guitar playing, the kind of snarly, uh, uh, foreboding sounding vocals, but where it's still singy enough that it's not just which I never really got into uh, a whole lot. Um, and those bands begat Iron Maiden, which of course, I mean, predated those bands, but I mean, we, we weren't approaching this in a chronological sense, it was just whatever band we happened to hear about and start getting our, our hooks into. But what really took things to the next level in this chapter was that um, John and I became marks for the old Columbia House uh, tape um, scam, I guess. I, I, guess, I don't know if that is a scam, I mean, I definitely got something out of it, but it was this deal back in the day where um, a company called Columbia House, um, which I can't remember if they were like affiliated with like Columbia Records or what the deal was, but um, just kind of this ubiquitous thing. You'd see their catalogs everywhere. They'd get mailed to you all the time. And they had this deal where like basically you paid some kind of marginal fee, maybe $10 or something, and got some ungodly amount of cassettes. Maybe, no, it wasn't even $10. I think it was like $2. And you got like, 20 cassettes or something, which back then was just phenomenal. Like nowadays, you know, you pay $15 a month for Apple Music or whatever, and you have like 10 billion albums. Like I can't even, I don't even, we'll talk about my music listening habits nowadays later, but um, like I I have a hard time even listening to music now because I have so much at my disposal. Um, But back then, uh, that was just to have that many tapes flood in at you at once was amazing. And that's what it was. The initial sign up would net you that first lump sum of tapes. Then after that, you were part of their club. And um, I think what it was is the club entailed um, that you were on the hook for buying a certain amount of full price tapes or CDs every month um, once you were a member. And um, I remember to, I'll have to look this up. I'm sorry, guys, I didn't do research here because I, I don't know that you necessarily need to hear all the, we can all look this up. But like, I remember there being kind of an onerous process to get out of the agreement. And there were always like horror stories that like 
some kids signed up for Columbia House, and then a couple years later, after they're done with college, they realized they had like you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for uh, unpurchased CDs, and Columbia House was suing them for it, and they lost their credit and they're bankrupt and everything. But all I saw was hey, like two bucks, twenty tapes, or whatever the hell the the deal was. So I signed up for it. I'm pretty sure I remember John signing up for it too. Um, and because uh, I think by now we'd gotten through that first seventh grade year and this was kind of the summertime because I remember kind of sitting around for what seemed like forever waiting for that first shipment of tapes to arrive. Um, uh, I, the closest thing I can liken it to is when I was quite a bit younger, the first time I had used proofs of purchase to get an action figure. It was um, the Kenner Boba Fett Star Wars action figure. I had acquired that with proofs of purchases and it seemed to take probably six to eight months for that figure to arrive. It was probably more like two to four weeks, but you know, time is always relative, uh, much more so when you're a child waiting for a toy or a teen waiting for tapes, which I was in this case. So after what seemed to be um, years, these tapes arrived at my house and kind of this long cardboard box. And it was just like it, it was mind bending. Like I just had so much, and these were all metal tapes. I'd subscribed. I was, I was part of their metal club. Um, mostly at this point I'd gone full thrash metal. Um, I remember I got everything from kind of like more recognizable stuff like Metallica tapes to, uh, from them to much more esoteric tapes. Like I remember I got a tape from a band called Cyclone Temple, which I think I'd seen once on Headbangers Ball. And Ms. Sensational makes fun of me to this day because in our town, Santa Rosa, there was a record store downtown called The Last Record Store. The Last Record Store still exists. Actually, my friend Jerry that I went to All Pro Wrestling with works at The Last Record Store. But um, they used to buy used tapes and CDs and records and such. And so um, in the days when cassettes were king, you'd end up with like a huge pile of tapes you didn't listen to anymore. So you could go down there and sell those and usually make enough money to buy like one or two new tapes or records or whatever. But the one tape of mine that the, guy, the guys that worked there would never buy was Cyclone Temple. Like I would always like shove this huge pile of metal tapes across the counter at them. They'd always like take most of them and shove the Cyclone Temple back, uh, tape back. So Cyclone Temple, if you guys are out there, rock on, man. Um, I'll have to look them up later. But by that summer, um, the summer after seventh grade going into eighth grade, I had really kind of settled in into being a thrash metal aficionado. I had those tapes, probably acquired a few new ones. Um, I had started collecting different magazines. Like I think there was like Metal Edge and Metal Maniacs and Rip Magazine, which were um, part of a, 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 sad, a sorely missed uh, uh, cultural phenomenon from the 80s and 90s was the um, – uh, proliferation of for whatever particular hobby or interest you had, there was always like kind of a magazine culture that rose up around it. So like uh, in professional wrestling, there were these magazines that are known as the Aptor Mags because uh, um, they were all were um, the uh, public face of the magazine. The, the editor was this guy, Bill Aptor. Um, so just various magazines that you could find at the newsstand about wrestling. Um, but similarly with music, um, in this case, heavy metal music, uh, video games had magazines and that's obviously all pretty much gone now. Um, but that was a fun part of that, uh, point in time. Um, you know, I, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not, you know, I, I tend to talk about a lot of, um, kind of pop culture history on this show, but I, by no means does that mean like I'm a antiquarian or I don't believe in new things. Um, I, I think ultimately there's so many benefits to the way that 
media is consumed, that cultures consume now um, versus how it was back then. But at the same time, there was something to be said back then for um, just kind of the mystique that surrounded everything, made everything seem that much cooler or more entertaining and less boring. You, you couldn't know everything about everything, which I think I've talked about before on this show. And the magazines were kind of, were cool because like you could learn about stuff, but it was this very limited window and you were under, um, it, it was, um, you could only learn what the magazines were willing to tell you. Um, and uh, so I stockpiled quite a few of these magazines, and pretty soon my um, entire bedroom was um, uh, wallpapered with pictures of men with long hair, tight black T-shirts, black tight black jeans, and big white sneakers. Um, some of them playing Flying V guitars or various different uh, like BC Rich guitars, uh, bands like Slayer, uh, Creator. Um, Metallica, Megadeth, uh, Maiden, um, Overkill, Exodus, Anthrax. Um, I tried to, I started to delve a little bit into what at the time was kind of the new, like kind of grindcore death metal stuff that was coming out. But like I said, like the never did it for me. So, I mean, I, I gave it a valiant effort and I, I probably had like a cannibal corpse picture up in my room, but my heart was never in it with those bands. Um, but so I'd gone full thrash, um, and I was ready to start eighth grade. I never really did catch on with the rockers. And part of the problem with that, and I was getting a little bit more astute at this time than I was back when I tried to hang out with skateboarders in sixth grade. I, we were just in different worlds. Like most of the rockers that hung as a tribe were pretty feral. Like they, they had their, either their parents didn't give a crap what they were doing or their parents were busy with other things. So these kids were already at this age, like partying drinking and stuff like that. And, um, I was fairly naive to that kind of stuff. I didn't really become a partier until I was later in high school. And so uh, that just didn't mesh with me. Like I, in, in part, it's part of what drew me to them was this edginess. But then when I really got there, it's like, I couldn't pull the trigger. Cause what am I going to go like drink a fifth Jack Daniels and smoke a cigarette? Not at age 12. <laughs> I wasn't maybe a couple years later, but, uh, um, and it become pretty apparent. I tried to I glom onto a few of them like I did with the skaters. And none of them ever gave me the major, like, uh, brush off of death that I got there. But I, I got ditched and I got, like, avoided. And at this point, I was able to pick up on that. I was like, ah, this isn't going to work out. So I never really caught on with the rockers. And then I really severed ties with them once I'd gone full thrash. Um, I was starting to get a little bit of a toot at this point. The thrash was uh, was um, bringing out another side of my personality. So I actually started getting a little lippy with them. Like, I remember I walked past them once, and, like, um, there was a dude, I think his name was Pierre. He was a short little guy with, like, uh, bright red hair um, down in his face. Uh, I think there's, like, a um, maybe a King of the Hill character they looked exactly like. Is there, like, a redhead dude with kind of moppy hair in his face in King of the Hill? The dog has a really deep voice. Um, anyway, if that was, that was, oh, wait, no, his name wasn't Pierre, it was Jacques. Jacques was his name. I knew it was one of those, uh, stereotypical French names, but Jacques. And Jacques, uh, would wear a Motley Crue, uh, Dr. Feelgood shirt. And God knows I love Motley Crue, but at this point in time, I was publicly disavowing Motley Crue because that was lame hair metal music, and I was full thrash. I was a hardcore thrasher. And so I saw him once, and I was like, huh, nice shirt, dude, Motley Crue sucks. And he was like, you suck. And then I did, I think I did a mock rendition. I started singing, Without you in my life, I slowly went and died. And then they were all just like, what's wrong with you, dude? But I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but, uh, 
Anyhow, so the, the the rocker thing never did pan out for me, but I did um, continue to watch them with some level of morbid curiosity and amusement from afar. Watched the wars between the rockers and the rappers. Uh, watched as uh, an amazing um, development took place somewhere around eighth grade, I think. was um, There was one hardcore rocker by the name of Wes, and Wes's mom was kind of this biker-looking lady who was a yard duty at the school. And Wes was full rocker, but uh, Wes was into playing basketball. And the, the rappers all played basketball because, you know, that's, yo, homie, let's play some, shoot some hoops or whatever. I don't know the, the lingo, but, you know, they were all trying to talk like that. And um, so he started playing basketball with the rappers. And this was like a shocking turn of events. And some thought that maybe this would be a new era of uh, fusion between the, the rappers and the rockers. Um, uh, peace would be brokered, but really what happened was Wes became a rapper. He turned his mullet into a rat tail and started wearing like a, they would wear these like starter hats like high up on their head. And so that was a, that was weird, man. That was like the one defection that ever happened. I don't can't ever recall a, a rapper becoming a rocker, uh, but I do remember that rocker becoming a rapper. And then after that, the jig was kind of up for the rockers because one by one, they either kind of melt away and become just something else or they became rappers because like rock rock was in a bad way. It was dying. But I was just quietly being my own like D&D comic book thrash metal listening self. Um, I do remember once um, me and my friends, again, thrash metal kind of emboldened us. We kind of became our own group of just sort of weirdos. And uh, I remember we started our own sort of war with the rappers because these guys were just ridiculous, dude. I mean, it's nothing against like rap music. I mean, I listen to hip hop music. I listen to rap music. Um, but these guys were just such posers and they took themselves so seriously and like just claiming like supposed gang affiliations. And trust me, this was not even true. We were at a fairly well-heeled uh, junior high school. Like uh, my parents were pretty straight middle class and I was like considered a poor kid at the school. So... Um, uh, these guys were just so ridiculous, took themselves so seriously, would always be standing out in the, the food court, like just sort of like making sure people were following the rules of rap. And uh, um, I, I think one time what it was is like uh, the kids could bring in tapes to play over the loudspeakers um, at uh, the, like the recesses. They call it like brunch and then lunch recess. Um, and I think one time someone tried to bring like a thrash tape and like the rappers had it quickly uh, turned off and, and confiscated because, you know, uh, uh, rap music only G. Um, so we're like, you know, this is just ridiculous. So we started a, a parody group called the VIP. And VIP was named after the Vanilla Ice song that was popular at the time where I think he references like a, yo, VIP, let's kick it or something like that. I think that's supposed to be like his crew. So we were the VIP. We were the various ice posse. And so um, this was also a parody of many rappers at the time having ice-related names. So um, we had an ice box. We had, I was Ice Trey. Um, I wish I could remember some of the other ones, but we wore accoutrements that went along with that. Like I wore an ice tray around my neck. Um, I think um, this guy named Jacob, I think actually constructed like a, a fake ice box that I think he also wore. And so one day when they were all sitting there listening to MC Hammer and the quad, we all came in there and, and I started, I brought, brought back the breakdance moves from last episode. We started getting down in the quad thinking it'd be all in good fun. And well, these guys were on us in two seconds, just like shoving us, you, you uh, homosexual expletive. And uh, yeah, they weren't amused, but we certainly were amused. Now that was good times. So I look back on the various ice posse lasted for all of one day, but, but that was, that, that was a good time in my life. That, that was fun. It's always fun 
them being annoying to people that take themselves too seriously. And so eighth grade kept rolling along, and with this weird nexus of interests of sort of comic books, video games, um, role-playing games, uh, sort of campy B-movies, um, and thrash metal, um, we sort of started to assemble our own crew. Me, John, another guy named John, a guy named Matt, a guy named Jacob, um, probably some other people I'm, I'm forgetting, but we'd gone from, uh, or at least, I mean, I know I'd gone from being totally, um, uh, left to my own devices as far as survival in junior high school to, um, starting to sort of feel that sense of belonging that I'd always been looking for, although it came in a weird way because we weren't really a full-on definable crew, but we were a crew. I think the things that we were into um, nowadays, it's more of a divine thing, defined thing. I mean, I, we'd be considered like, what are they, like, like, it was like geek culture type stuff, but it didn't, I mean, we were definitely called geeks, but it didn't have the same connotation. Um, you know, the, us geeks had not yet won the culture wars as we would go on to, uh, later on um but yeah we weren't rockers we weren't rappers we were nerds but not but we didn't like particularly do well in school so we weren't like those kind of nerds um some of us like one of the johns not the main john but the other john he was already smoking weed and was kind of like a ne'er-do-well but like that wasn't totally our defining tip because then we had other ones like myself i was a total goody two-shoes in that front um but we kind of started our we had our own group and so like you know you had a crew that had your back now you could do stuff like the various ice posse and still get beat up but you have other people getting beat up with you um and uh that carried me like i said through uh, my eighth grade year and that eighth grade summer all to a steady soundtrack of thrash metal music um until i got to ninth grade um and ninth grade being um now that I'm thinking back about it, I tend to think of more like my high school years as really formative, but ninth grade was an extremely pivotal year for me now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and as ninth grade kicked off, um, I had, through watching Headbangers Ball, uh, become aware of a band called Faith No More. And Faith No More was the first um, kind of epiphany musical epiphany moment I had had in some time. I'd had these moments before. I described having these moments uh, the first time I saw Twisted Sister on MTV. Um, I felt the same way when I first heard Michael Jackson. Um, I uh, felt the same way when I first started watching Headbangers Ball and getting deeper into thrash metal, but then that kind of became like a sort of a more homogenous, you know, cloud. But then this was the first group in a while that I saw that really just like kind of sh was a shock to the system. And these guys, um, for those, I mean, I imagine most of you have heard them. Um, they had a real high spike of popularity around 1990 and then kind of became more obscure after that. But they got a lot of attention because they had for a, uh, what at the time was a pretty unique sound and what became a very genre-defining sound going into the 90s. They were definitely they were kind of a bridge from the 80s to the 90s. They were the, one of the first bonafide, I mean, not the first because there were other ones, but they were, they were um, uh, flag bearers of the quote-unquote alternative rock movement. And I know a lot of people make fun of that term, alternative rock, just like alternative anything. It's kind of a lame term, but it was a thing in the 90s. I mean, you can't deny it. There was a genre, alternative rock. And you can, 
uh, debate exactly what it is and what it entails, but it was out there. And Faith No More um, got a lot of uh, critical buzz because they were seen as like, oh, they're mixing all these various genres. Like, uh, um, the bass player is into death metal, and the, the keyboardist is like some club disco guy, and then they have a heavy metal, thrash metal guitar player, and the drummer's like a reggae dude, and the singer is rapping. Although he wasn't really rapping, but I don't know, for some reason they always... That was always the claim about Mike Patton. But Mike Patton, that's the thing that stood out to me so much about Faith and Martin. I mean, sure, yeah, they had a totally unique look. Um, they looked cool, but it was like in a, their own weird, different way, and each guy had his own distinct uh, deal. And I, I think I might have talked about that before, but that, I'm always a mark for that kind of thing. Anytime there's like a, any kind of group, whether it's a band, whether it is a like stable of wrestlers, whether it is... Um, anything really it, it's the whole Voltron um, and all form the head like you know the different parts coming together to form this group but each part's its own distinct thing I love that uh, Wu-Tang Clan later on would be a great example of that but Faith and More was each guy was his own distinct character but when they came together they were that band their sound was unique and Mike Patton the singer was just oozing with charisma but it was this strange charisma it was this sarcastic kind of ironic charisma um and it was it was 1990, and we were we were heading into the decade of irony and darkness, and up is down, and down is up, and bad is good. And he just really seemed to be in the right place at the right time to be channeling all of that energy. And I was just really taken with this guy. So I started um, to really be into Faith No More. I went out and bought the real thing on cassette, listened to it over and over again. But somehow that started to awaken this thing in me. I remembered like back when um, I talked about this on the failures in skateboarding episode two, back when I'd been reading Thrasher magazines, I would see features they would do on bands and like the bands would be advertised, like selling t-shirts and stuff in their magazines. And I remember these bands weren't full. They weren't quite metal bands, but what were they? Um, I, you know, I knew that there were these, some sort of edgy rock music and some of them looked sort of metalish, but weren't quite metal. They were their own thing. There must be something else out there. And Faith No More was kind of the gateway to get me out of just rigid, dogmatic thrash metal to realize that there's this other stuff going on. And I need to, I need to find out what exactly this is. And, um, adding to that, I heard through the grapevine that, did you know the singer from Faith No More is actually in another band? He is? Yeah. They're like even weirder and more underground. You can buy their demo tape at the last record store. Last record store being the store here in town where my friend Jerry now works. And up to that point, I had been buying my tapes at just lame stores like Music Land and Warehouse at the mall. Um, I don't know why I hadn't been going to the last record store, but this became a big thing that you could get the, the uh, this band called Mr. Bungle that allegedly Mike Patton, the singer from Faith No More, also sang for. They're, they weren't signed to a major record label that you couldn't find the records anywhere else. You could only go down to the last record store and they sold the demo cassette tapes there. So... Um, that was it. I was on a mission. I was going to go find this tape and I was going to go find out what else, what this other kind of music that I could just sort of sense was out there, um, what it was, it was calling to me. And this is what we're going to get into next episode. I went a little bit long this time that I'm trying to get this uh, wrapped up next episode. We are definitely going to finish music and then we will never talk about music again on this show. Actually, that's probably not true, but <laughs> this, this little, what's going to turn out to be a four part arc will come to an end next time. I am planning on getting the next episode out sooner than later because there was such a lag between the last one and this one. I'm pretty much going to get this in the can and start on the next one so we can keep some momentum going here with the podcast. Again, like I mentioned earlier, this is all a work in progress for me. I started this, uh, not this specific show, but this entire 
podcast series with absolutely no plan, just sat down in front of the mic and started talking. So it is a work in progress. It is evolving before us. Thank you for bearing with me. If you are still listening, you must really be bearing with me because you've born through this whole episode. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I've been getting good feedback. I hope people are out there listening, liking it. Um, friend request me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at Sensational Vega. Uh, you can find more details about me at uh, genovega.wordpress.com. I totally failed uh, putting together show notes for the last episode, but I am going to have them for this episode. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it for me, Mr. Sensational, coming to you from the IC Robots Radio Network. Um, oh, I wanted to give a quick shout out. If you haven't checked that out yet, you have to check out Icy Robots' last episode of This Boring Life, his episode about comic book stores here in Santa Rosa. It is, it's probably my favorite thing that he's ever done, and I'm a huge fan of all of his work. Um, so that's not light praise. It was a really good episode. Go check that out. Um, go follow Icy Robots on Facebook. Um, find them on Twitter. Um, go to icyrobots.com. Go to iTunes. Go to Stitcher. Go to wherever. Subscribe to the feed. Listen to all the shows. They're all great. Um, yeah, that's about it for me. And, um, we'll talk again next time. Uh, until then, thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. This is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing off. This has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Radio Network. Y'all heard? <laughs>